listening to Life 101, where we live in faith every day. This is Life Online, where we study God's Word line by line, and I'm your host, Pastor Adrian. Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 28 verse 9 he asked the question who shall he teach knowledge and who shall he make to understand doctrine and then he doesn't leave us hanging he gives us the answer he asks the question he poses the question who shall he teach knowledge and who shall he make to understand doctrine and then he answers, them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. He goes further to explain why it is only them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. He explains in verse 10, for precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, Line upon line, line upon line, here in the thought and there in the thought. So it takes the maturity in God's Word to, to comprehend God's Word in such a way that you can take a precept or an instruction from this book and tie it together with an instruction from another prophet. Because line is here and line is there. And it's the mature in Christ that can put line upon line. So if you're serious about your walk with God, and you want to understand true doctrine, it's time to get your Bible and follow along as we study God's Word. It's time to be weaned from the milk. Get your Bible. Tell a friend about this study. Tell your pastor about this study. And let's get into God's Word, line upon line. Yeah, so we are now up to Acts chapter 4. Let's open with a word of prayer and get into God's Word. Our Heavenly Father, we pause before studying your Word because we want to acknowledge you as the Creator of the universe and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we ask, Father, that you'll bless this study, that you'll bless all of those, Father, who tune in, and, and just help us, Father, to really have a hunger and thirst for the truth in your Word. Help us not to be offended by your Word, Help us instead, Father, to be, to be stimulated, to, to, to be uh, stimulated with a deep desire to, to dig into your word and search the scriptures to, in fact, see if these things are so. We thank you, Lord God Almighty, and we ask this blessing now in the holy and the mighty name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. So last week we were in Acts chapter 3, we're now into Acts chapter 4, but I just want to go back and pick up the last bit of Acts chapter 3 just so we get the continuity because uh, the Apostle Peter was in the midst of a sermon when we come into Acts chapter 4. So we'll just go back to chapter 3 and pick it up in verse 22 so we can just finish uh, the sermon that he was giving. And he says here in verse 22, For Moses truly said unto the fathers, so this is now he's quoting Moses in his sermon, For Moses truly said unto the fathers, so he's speaking to the Jews, and, and, and they all adhere to the, the word of Moses. And here he's telling, look, remember, Moses said to the fathers that a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren. So this is what Moses wrote. 
that there will be a prophet that your Lord, the Lord your God will raise up unto you of your brethren. And, and so a lot of uh, people today believe that uh, there's going to be a prophet from another line uh, that, that, has, that doesn't have any regard for the scriptures. But that's not what Moses taught. Moses taught that there would be a prophet that would come from this line and would, would regard what Moses wrote and would comply with what Moses wrote. And so we have to, again, study God's word line upon line and not be deceived. You know, when my uncle, when I was young, uh, before he died, he said to me, don't let anybody take the word of God away from you. And I was young, I was a teenager, I didn't fully comprehend what he was saying. But as I've gotten older, I have really clung to that advice. I realize it is the devil's work to take the word of God away from us. And so I don't care who the guy is that is coming with an idea or a book or whatever he has to say, put the Bible down and, and take this up. Sorry, dead on arrival. Uh, I will not depart from the word of the prophets. And so here, uh, Peter is telling the Jewish brethren that Moses truly said unto the fathers that a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me. So this prophet will be like Moses. Him shall you hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. So this prophet would come and he would be very similar to Moses. And he is to come with authority and they are to obey him. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. So this is serious. When this prophet comes, it's a very serious matter. And, and Peter is now leaning on the prophecy of Moses to demonstrate the authority of Jesus Christ. Yes, and listen to verse 24 of Acts 3. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. So, so not only did Moses be, be, begin to prophesy about this prophet that would come, but here what Peter is saying, if you truly understand the scriptures, all the prophets from Samuel and all those that follow after, they all pointed to this time and this, this Messiah figure who would come with great authority and with a purpose of redemption. They all wrote about it. Then he says here in verse 25, he says, you, speaking to the Jews, you are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, and in your seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. You, you, you are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, and in your seed, not in any seed, in your seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed and not cursed. This, this is not that in this seed we're going to see uh, terrorist attacks all over the world and every family member suffering loss. No, this is the seed that all families of the earth will be blessed. Verse 26, unto you first God, unto you, so he's, he's sharing with them the privileged position that they are in. Unto you first, God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. So, so think about what this man Jesus did 
when he was on earth. God sent him to you to bless you, to turn every one of you from your iniquities. Now with that, he comes into, or we come into uh, chapter 4. This is the sermon that he's giving, explaining to them that the privileged position that they have, that they're going to lose if they do not acknowledge the authority of this servant that God has sent through in the form of Jesus Christ. And that all the prophets pointed to Christ, and they've missed it. Now we come to Acts 4, verse 1. And as they spoke unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. So, uh-oh, we have trouble now. So here's Peter and, and the apostles giving their, their this, this, this preaching, this very profound teaching. And now we have the priests and the, the captain of the temple and the Sadducees coming upon them. Luke writes, being grieved that they taught the people. They, they just hated this. Why are you teaching the people this? They were grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now the Sadducees, they did not believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in any life after death. They just believed that when you're dead, that's it. And so they just hated this. The authority that these men were teaching that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and that, that he's, he's the forerunner and there is life after death. They, they were grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold until the next day, for it was now evening. So, you know, this is just terrible. We have been here teaching that there's nothing after death. There is no life after death. You come contradicting us in the temple. How do you think that makes us look? And so there's a lot of ego that's taking place here. And so now it's evening. They can't really do anything with them. So they arrest them and keep them in prison until the next day. Howbeit, verse 4, many of them which heard the word believed. And that is the power of preaching. That people will hear, they'll hear the logic of what is being said, and they'll weigh it against what they currently believe, and realize they've been taught falsehood. And they will embrace the word of God. And so this is the power of preaching. And so many of them which heard the word believed. And the number of the men was about 5,000. So we start off with, you know, with 120 men. Then on Pentecost, because of the preaching, we had uh, 3,000 converts added. And now we have another 5,000 added. The word is on fire. The word is on fire. And people are hearing the word of God preached powerfully, and they're believing. So another 5,000 are added. And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and the elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. So these are all the family of the high priest. In other words, if the high priest is identified as a fraud and people come to see that Jesus Christ is the true high priest, and they stop following this high priest, here are all the people that will that have something to lose. So they, they don't like the way things are going. So they have a vested interest in keeping the people focused on the high priest and not losing their focus and, and turning to Jesus Christ. And when they had set them in the midst, that is, they've set the apostles in the middle of them, they asked, saying, By what power 
Or by what name have you done this? Uh-oh, this is trouble. These people are in collusion with the Roman government. And so they operate in a way that Rome is happy with them. And Rome has basically um, given them credentials to say that it's a legitimate religion, and Rome no longer sees it as a threat. So Judaism is fine. And now they're calling these apostles and saying, by what power or by what name have you done this? And so this could be a threat to Rome, and it would be easy to get rid of these people simply by identifying them as being in some opposition to the emperor. It also threatens their power and their authority. So they want to know, by what power, by what authority have you done this? Notice now, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said unto them, you rulers of the people and elders of Israel. So first he was talking to the people. Now he's talking to the rulers of the people and the elders of Israel. And notice, he is fearless. He is fearless. Why is he fearless? Because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember, this is the Peter that was, was, was afraid for his life, that betrayed Christ three times before the cock crew. So that was the carnal Peter. Now, as a result of Pentecost, he is now filled with the Holy Spirit, and that is what Luke is writing. Luke is writing to Theophilus to show Theophilus the power of the Holy Spirit and how the continuity of the ministry of Jesus Christ. So if you read volume one, which we just finished, that's the book of the gospel according to Luke, we see the power of the Holy Spirit working in Jesus Christ. Now that we come to volume two, the book of Acts, we see Christ is no longer on earth, but we see the power of the Holy Spirit working exactly the same way that it worked in Christ, now working in the apostles. And more specifically, what Luke is writing to Theophilus is he's showing, first of all, the power of the Holy Spirit in, in John and specifically Peter. And then he's going to change gears, shift, and show that same Holy Spirit working in Paul. And Theophilus is going to see this complete continuity between the Holy Spirit in Christ, the Holy Spirit in John and Peter, and the Holy Spirit in Paul. That it is the same work all the way along. And so here Peter is full of boldness, and he's fearless because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And when we were at the beginning of the book here, Acts 1, verse 8, Christ said to them, but you shall receive power. And we're seeing that power in action now. You shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit, this is Acts 1, verse 8, you shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, so that's where Peter is right now, he's in Jerusalem, and he's being a witness to Christ. But Christ is saying it's going to start in Jerusalem, it's going to spread from there. You'll be witnesses, uh, witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So what Peter is doing in Jerusalem is the beginning of this witnessing. Of with boldness and without apology. It begins in Jerusalem, it spreads to Judea, it spreads to Samaria, ultimately to the uttermost parts of the earth, where we see in Matthew 24, verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world as a witness 
So we see this witnessing beginning in Jerusalem and ultimately spreading to the whole globe. Back to Acts 4, verse 9. He continues, If we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole? And so now he's getting into his arguments. Okay, uh, you have a problem with us? All we've done is good. So you want to examine us for the good that we did? I, I just, let's, let's just set the record straight here. You have a problem with the good that we've done? And, and this, is, this, this is, again, Luke is very clever in his writing. This is exactly how we see the confrontation with Christ. In fact, let's look at the Gospel of John. In John 10, verse 30, he says, I and my Father are one. This is Christ speaking now. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. Good works. I've done many good works from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? So, so hey, come on now. You, you, I, I, you, you have a problem? Which particular good work did I do that you have a problem with? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone you not, but for blasphemy, and because that you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods, unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, say you of him whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, you blaspheme, because I said, I am the Son of God. So, so Christ didn't say, oh, no, no, you got this all wrong. I'm not blaspheming. Uh, I'm just a guy. No, wait, the, the scripture says you are gods. And I'm telling you I'm the Son of God. Is there, you, have, you have a problem? Then he says this, if I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though you believe not me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand. So, so they had a real problem with Christ. All he did was good, but they had a problem with him. And now his apostles, same thing. They're just doing good, but they have a problem with them. And it's, it's ultimately the same thing. They are threatened by, by the uh, transfer of power from them to Christ. They're threatened by this. Let's go back to Acts 4. And we'll just back up a little bit, just hit the flow again, from verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked them, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said unto them, You rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good done unto the important man, by what means he is made whole? So, so remember the good that he did in, in chapter 3, and we were there last week, verse 7. Yeah, it says, he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he leaping up stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. This was a man that was impotent for decades. And everybody going to and from the temple would see him and give him alms. And now he's leaping, he's walking, he's upstanding. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. And as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's. 
greatly wondering. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, You men of Israel, why marvel you at this? Or why look you so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? So Christ came healing, and now his apostles come healing. And the people are looking at the apostles like, this. clearly this is a miracle. You must be miracle workers. You must be great men. And Peter's like, why are you looking at us as if we did this? This is the power of God. And this is a real, you know, if you, we, we suffer today from a lot of insecure people who position themselves as great men. They position themselves as great prophets. And anytime you hear somebody positioning themselves for praise, beware, beware. The true servants of God only want God to be praised. And they never puff themselves up. They never try to put themselves in some kind of special role. So beware. And so here, Peter would have every opportunity to take praise from men. But instead he says, don't look at us. We didn't do this. This is God's work. And again, the way Luke is writing here, he is legitimizing the apostleship of Paul. He wants Theophilus to understand that Paul truly is a legitimate apostle of God. And so later, we'll get there later, but let's just do a little preview of Acts 14 and verse 8. We see the same miracle, and we see the same response. In Acts 14, verse 8, And there sat a certain man of Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb, who never had walked. The same heard Paul speak, who stood steadfastly beholding him, and perceiving that he had faith to be healed. Said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he leaped and walked, right away, immediately. And when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lacaonia, The gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. And they called Barnabas Jupiter, and Paul Mercury, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garland unto the gates, and would have done sacrifice with the people. So they wanted to worship these these two, two men, Paul and Barnabas, which when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of, they tore their clothes and ran in among the people, crying out, and saying, Sirs, why do you these things? We also are men of like passions with you, and preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things therein, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness, in that he did good, and gave us rain from heaven in fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, Scarce restrained they the people, that they had not done sacrifice unto them. So we see true apostles behaving always consistently in the same way. They might do something miraculous, but they absolutely will not accept praise from men. They will always point men back to God. And I'm just calling this out because there are a lot of false teachers out there. And what they're doing is they're putting themselves in the scriptures. And they're saying, oh, I'm Elisha, 
and I'm John the Baptist, and I'm this prophet or that prophet. And they're getting the people to praise them and follow them. False teachers. False teachers. Red flag, red flag. True servants of God point you to God. And they will not accept your worship. They point you to God. Let's go back to Acts 4. So now Paul, uh, sorry, uh, Peter, is now confronting these leaders. And in verse 9 he says, If we today are being examined for the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he has made whole, be it known unto you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand here before you whole. You want to know how we did this? I'll tell you by what authority we did this. By Jesus Christ, whom you crucified and God raised from the dead. Uh-oh, we've got a contradiction here. You hated him, God loves him. That can only mean you are of your father the devil and we work for God. Because there's a contradiction here. You put him to death, God brought him to life. Which side are you on? He says, he goes on. He says, by him does this man stand before you whole. This man that we've seen for decades, lame, impotent. Now he's standing before you whole. Jesus Christ, the name of Jesus Christ did that. This is the stone which was said at nothing of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. The most important stone when building is the stone you set first, the head cornerstone. And Jesus Christ has become the head cornerstone. And you're the builders, and you didn't even know that. Now, when he says that Christ has become the head of the corner, he's actually quoting Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself said, I am the head cornerstone. And we saw that when we were in Luke chapter 20. Let's just go back there. Luke 20, so Peter is quoting Christ. And here's where Christ identified himself as the head of the corner. In Luke 20 and verse 9, Then began he to speak to the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard and led it forth to husbandmen and went into a far country for a long time. And at the season he sent a servant to the husbandmen that they should give him of the fruit of the vineyard. But the husbandmen beat him and sent him away empty. So these husbandmen are just really servants. They're there to look after the land, but the land doesn't belong to them. But the, 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 the owner has been away for so long, and they've been in this privileged position for so long, that they have forgotten that this land does not belong to them. That it is really on loan, you could say. They're just there as stewards, but they've forgotten. And so now when he sends a servant to them to get some of the fruit, rightfully his, they beat him up and send him away empty. And again, verse 11, he sent another servant, and they beat him also, and entreated, and, and treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty. And again he sent a third, and they wounded him also, and cast him out. Then said the Lord of the vineyard, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. It may be they will reverence him when they see him. 
But when the husbandmen saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they've become quite evil. And this is what happens to men when they, when they enjoy privilege. They can become quite evil. And so here now, they reason among themselves, let's get rid of him. And then we won't have, this, this land will be totally ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. What therefore shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? He shall come and destroy these husbandmen and shall give the vineyard to others. This is quite a parable. And these elders and the Sadducees and the high priests, they really need to think about this because they are the husbandmen of the vineyard. The vineyard is the tribe of Judah and really you can even just say the whole nation of Israel. And these people are the husbandmen. And this parable cast them in a very evil light. And when they heard it, they said, God forbid. And he beheld them and said, What is this then that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. So they're saying, No way. God forbid that the husbandmen of the vineyard should be destroyed. So then Christ quotes David in the Psalms. And says, well, how can you say God forbid? Because there's a prophecy that says that the builders are going to reject a stone which will then become the head of the corner. So if they reject the stone that is going to become the head of the corner, obviously when the building is built and this is the head cornerstone which they rejected, then they themselves must be rejected in the new building. Because they rejected this stone. So, so uh, Christ quotes the psalmist. They say, God forbid that the husbandmen should be rejected. So then Christ says, well, what is this then that's written in the psalms? That the stone which the builders rejected has become the head cornerstone. And then he goes on. Whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Wow! This is a confrontation. You leaders of Judah, listen, you are rejecting the head cornerstone. And you say, God forbid that you should be rejected? Well, if this head cornerstone falls upon you, it's going to grind you to powder. What do you mean, God forbid? <clears throat> And verse 19, and the chief priests and the scribes the same hour sought to lay hands on him. They're fulfilling the parable. And they feared the people, for they perceived that he had spoken this parable against them. And so he was quoting Psalm 118. <clears throat> and it's not until he is crucified that the import of Psalm 118 can be fully appreciated. But they would know, the minute he quotes part of Psalm 118, they would know the whole psalm. I'm not going to quote the whole psalm here, but I would encourage you to read Psalm 118 uh, in the light of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But let's just break into verse 15. Psalm 118, the voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tabernacle of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. 
I shall not die, but live, and declare the works of the Lord. So if someone is trying to kill the Messiah, the Messiah understands their agenda and says, you know what, I shall not die, but live. The, the, the grave will have no power over me, and I will declare the works of the Lord. That this, this is the work of God. The Lord has chastened me sore. So this, uh, we have to understand Isaiah, second Isaiah, really beginning from chapter 40 to verse uh, to chapter 65, and read the prophecies of Isaiah and this suffering servant that is to come into the earth, that is to be chastened sore for the sake of his people Israel. And so here Christ, uh, the, the, uh, the prophet David, King David, is uh, prophesying that the Lord has chastened this servant sore, but he has not given me over to death. Death does not have power over me. Open to me the gates of, of righteousness. I will go into them, and I will praise the Lord. This gate of the Lord, into which the righteous shall enter, I will praise you, for you heard me, and are become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused, which they tried to kill, that stone, which the builders refused, is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. It's, it's marvelous in our eyes that the builders have rejected the stone, which in fact becomes the head cornerstone. And so these builders are going to be rejected. Back to Acts 4. So, so Peter quotes Christ, who was quoting David. And David prophesied that the stone which they reject becomes the head of the corner. Acts 4, verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There's no other name. It's only Christ. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, so this is what the Holy Spirit does. This is what the book of Acts is all about. The book of Acts is all about Pentecost, these people receiving the Holy Spirit of God, and how it transforms them, the transformative power of the Holy Spirit. It transforms them to have a ministry of boldness similar to the boldness of Jesus Christ. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived, that they were unlearned and ignorant men. They marveled. So these are not men that studied with them in their particular rabbinic schools. So they had their disciples, they had their men who they've trained for decades. They know who's learned. And yet here come Peter and John, who are not a part of their academic institution. And yet they seem to know the scriptures extremely well. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. And they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. So that is the schooling that they had, that they were with Jesus. But they don't know, they don't know the half of it. We do, because in Acts 1, verse 1, we know through Luke that they were disciples of Christ, and Christ taught them. And in fact, uh, he, even at one point, he was speaking to the rest of the Jews in parables, and his disciples asked him, why are you speaking to them in parables? But you, know, you speak plainly to us. 
They said, because it's given to you to understand the mysteries of, of the kingdom. But to them it's not given. Lest, lest they should hear with their ears and see with their eyes and, and, and repent. So here in Acts 1, that, that's part of it. So we know throughout his, his uh, ministry, he had his disciples and he taught them. But here in Acts 1, verse 1, it, the, the book of Acts begins, The former treaties I have made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. So that was, that's Luke. It was all about what Jesus began to do and teach. Acts is about what he continues to do and teach in his body. He said, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days. And in that forty-day period, he says, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So for 40 days, they were in a sort of intensive uh, an intensive PhD program to understand the kingdom of God. And then chapter 2 of Acts says, verse 1, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues, like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this is where the boldness is coming from. Yes, they were taught directly from Christ, and yes, they received the Holy Spirit fully. And so they were full of the Holy Spirit, they were full of the teaching of Christ, and this gave them great understanding, great vision of the future, and great boldness to teach, without apology, the Gospel. And so Acts 4, continuing, verse 14. And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. Like, there he is, this man that everybody has known for decades was impotent in his legs. And there he is standing in front of them. So they couldn't say anything. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves. They said, can you guys just excuse us? We need to talk uh, privately. So they confer among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle has been done by them is obvious to all. So, so this is clear. It says a notable miracle has been done by them, and it's obvious to, to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. So, so guys, what do we do here? They're all conferring among themselves. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them, that they speak from now on to no man in this name. And they called them, and they called them back in. So they don't know what to do here. This is a this is a very difficult situation. It's obvious that something miraculous has happened. But you know what? Let's do some damage control. Let's just threaten them so they just stop teaching this, because we don't want this spreading. It's all about power, and we don't want we don't want to lose our power. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, you judge. For we cannot speak the things, we cannot but speak the things, which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go. 
finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. For the man was about 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was shown. So they just had no idea how to deal with this. And so they threaten them. They don't, they don't care about the threatening. And uh, it's just a clear miracle. This man's over 40, uh, being lame from, from birth, I believe. <clears throat> and now he's healed. And being let go, they went to their own company. So that's interesting. So now that they're free, they go back to their congregation. They go back to the people who support them. And reported all, everything, that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. So the congregation gets a blow-by-blow recounting of what happened, so they can hear in detail. And notice verse 24. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. So they were not divided. They were all in one accord. They were in full agreement. Remember, everybody's full of the Holy Spirit here. When they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, all that in them is, who by the mouth of your servant David said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Christ. So they're in one accord, they're praying to God, and they really have a very deep understanding here. They're seeing the opposition to Christ. And they're seeing that opposition to Christ in the opposition to Peter and John. And they immediately quote David in Psalm 2. So that they see that the heathen are raging against God and against his anointed. And they imagine vain things. And that the kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. In Psalm 2, beginning in verse 1, David writes, Why do the heathen rage? And the people imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now David goes on explaining, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. So, so they, in, in, in uh, quoting David, and they only quoted part of David, they're actually speaking to the whole of the psalm. And then we'll just continue to, to read the rest of the psalm here. He says, yet till I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. So they're against him. And yet God is saying, no, I'm going to set him on my holy hill of Zion. And he's going to rule the whole world from Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, you are my son. This day have I begotten you. Ask of me and I shall give you the heathen for your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O you kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, 
lest he be angry and you perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled, but a little, he's going to unfold his full wrath, but even if his wrath was kindled just a little, you will perish. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. So this is the stone that the builders have refused. And immediately the congregation understand what is going on, that they are in opposition to him because they have been taken over by the devil. And it would be wise for them to repent and to kiss the son, have an intimate relationship with the son, so that they can thrive when the son establishes his kingdom. Because if they don't, they will perish. And those who trust, regardless of the opposition, those who trust in Christ, they they will flourish. And also in Psalm 83, we see the same opposition as well. Psalm 83, verse 2, For lo, your enemies make a tumult, and they that hate you have lifted up the head. They have taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted against your hidden ones. They have said, Come, and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be no more in remembrance. For they have consulted together with one consent. They are confederate against you. The tabernacles of Edom and the Ishmaelites of Moab and the Hadarenes, Gebel and Ammon and Amalek, the Philistines with the inhabitants of Tyre. Asher also is joined with them. They have helped the children of Lot, Selah. Do unto them as unto the Midianites, as to Sisera, as to Jabin, at the brook of Kison. So this opposition, these people really need to think about it and, and consider the ultimate success of the stone that they're rejecting, the ultimate success of the suffering servant, the ultimate success of the mighty Messiah. And they need to, to, to think about which side they're on. But also the people who are on God's side, they can have strong encouragement because they see through the word of God how all of this will unfold. Back to Acts 4, verse 27. For this is the congregation praying. For of a truth against your holy child Jesus, whom you have anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together. This is crazy. The children of Israel, the leaders in Israel, have colluded with the Romans to destroy your child Jesus. For to do whatsoever your hand and your counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings. So here, here's the real heart of the prayer that we want to get to here. When people are full of the Holy Spirit, they pray according to the will of God. Let's listen to this prayer of these people who are full of the Holy Spirit. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings. Look how they're threatening us, threatening your leaders. What do they want? Escape? Get, get us out of here? And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. Wow. You know, I think when we get into situations like this, oh, Lord, help us escape. Oh, Lord, show us a way out of here. These people full of the Holy Spirit pray according to the will of God. Grant unto your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word, that this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world as a witness, and that is in the context of all nations will hate you for my name's sake. 
and yet this gospel will still be preached. With all boldness, that he may speak your word, by stretching forth your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of your holy child Jesus. So, so give them more power to, to, to do these miracles in the name of Jesus Christ. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So remember, more were added now to another 3,000, another 5,000, and now all again are filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. That is the mark of a true Christian. That is the mark of a Christian filled with the Holy Spirit. We speak with boldness, not apology. And all these Christians now you see apologizing for Jesus Christ. Oh, yeah, if it offends people to say he's the Son of God, we, we don't have to say he's the Son of God. We can just say he was a nice guy. We can just say he was a prophet. We don't, we don't have to insist that he was the Son of God. We, we can back away from the Gospel. These are our false teachers, weak and liars. The Word of God is the Word of God. And we don't apologize for the Word of God. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We don't apologize for reality. The Son of God came to earth on a redemptive mission. So says the Word of God. And there were many infallible proofs to show that after they crucified him, he came back to life. Hundreds and hundreds of people saw him. And the whole Christian movement began because of the power of the resurrection. And now we have people coming along hundreds of years later saying, oh no, he wasn't resurrected. And we have weak, sniveling Christians saying, okay, if that offends you, we, we won't teach that. True Christians speak the word of God with boldness. Now, that was Peter and John. And again, Luke is setting this up so that Theophilus can understand Paul's ministry. And later in, in chapter 16, verse 25, when, when uh, Paul was arrested for preaching the word of God, uh, Paul and Silas, and at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awakening out of his sleep, and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing the prisoners had fled. So there was no way he was going to face the Roman authorities, saying, I know I was on guard, but they got away. He's like, no, I'll kill myself first. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. They, they didn't run. They weren't sniveling cowards. They were loosed, but they didn't run. And so the guard didn't have to kill himself. And in fact, the, car, the guard ended up converting and becoming a Christian. Back to Acts 4, verse 32. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. So I, I don't know, I think um, a lot of the bickering and division among Christians will be solved as the persecution of Christians increases. That all of a sudden, all the petty differences, suddenly we begin to see they're just petty. Because it seems under intense persecution, this is where we have people of one heart and of one soul. Mind you, 
the prophecy does say, again Matthew 24, that many shall betray one another, and the love of many shall wax cold. So prophetically, there will be division in the church, and there will be betrayal, just as Christ was betrayed by Judas. There will always be Judases among us, and that's just the way it is going to be until Christ returns. But the, the true church, the, the Holy Spirit-filled brethren, will be of one heart and of one soul. And we'll be very clear about our mission and our purpose, and I need to preach the gospel. And the multitude of them that believe were of one heart and of one soul, neither said any of them that ought of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power he gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Did you hear that? With great power they gave witness. Christ said, you will be, you will be given power and you will be my witnesses first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so here it's happening now. With great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet. So the apostles, as much as they were servants, they were leaders. And the brethren brought whatever means they had, because there was great trust, brought it to the apostles, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And so this is just a, a beautiful time, and they knew, they felt that the time was short, and so they, they had to prioritize and just ensure that everybody had what they needed and that they could preach boldly the gospel of Christ. And Jose, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted, the son of consolation, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this act from Barnabas, it seems like he had quite a bit of land, uh, this act from Barnabas really inspired the brethren. And when we get together next week, what we're going to see is uh, some people who, a couple, who see this and see the regard that the brethren had and the love that the brethren had for Barnabas because of this act, and they're now going to become impostors and try to pretend that they have um, performed at the same level of love for the brethren. And they're going to be called out. And we're going to see uh, the dramatic consequences of that effort of deception as the church is being founded. But we'll leave that to next week. For this week, what we really wanted to understand here is the boldness, the boldness of Peter and John. That it didn't matter how much opposition there was. They understood where that opposition is going to end. And they just were fully convinced of the success of Jesus Christ as the Messiah and the coming kingdom. And so they didn't care about the threatenings. And when they came back to their congregation and they shared with them everything, all the threatening, they didn't hold anything back, they shared all the threats, the, the brethren were not divided. They didn't, they didn't cry out and say, oh, God, save us, get us out of here, help us escape. 
They just said, please, give your servants great boldness in teaching this truth. And that's all to do with the day of Pentecost. That they were all together in one place, and the Holy Spirit came down upon them, and they are functioning from the Holy Spirit. And this is what uh, Luke is communicating to Theophilus. The boldness that comes from the Holy Spirit. So that Theophilus can better understand the apostleship and the ministry of Paul. And how Paul did the work that he did with great boldness. Because they see this continuity between the boldness of Jesus Christ being led by the Holy Spirit. How that transfers to his apostles. Uh, really highlighted by Peter and John being led by the Holy Spirit, and then how that transfers to Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, being led by the Holy Spirit. So I certainly hope that you enjoyed today's lesson on Acts chapter 3, and God willing, uh, you'll join us next week as we get into uh, Acts chapter, uh, sorry, we were Acts chapter 4 this week, and God willing, you'll join us next week as we get into Acts chapter 5. You've been listening to Line Upon Line on Life 101. And to find out more about uh, myself and Church of God International, please go ahead and visit our website at cgi.org. That's www.cgi.org. This is Adrian Davis, and this has been Line Upon Line, Acts Chapter 4. Join us next week, same time, for Acts Chapter 5.